Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hi, this is Ben Jackson, in for Alyssa Milano, who's had a heck of a travel schedule for the past month or so. It's Halloween week, and we thought we'd cap off spooky season with a look back at some of the scariest stories we've covered over the years here at Sorry Not Sorry. So sit back, turn on all the lights, and prepare to be terrified. We'll start today looking back at January of 2020, when Donald Trump almost thrust the United States into war with Iran. A Trump-approved drone strike killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani on a visit to Iraq, nearly plunging the region into a conflict that was likely to expand throughout that region. Alyssa invited veteran war correspondent Arwa Damon onto the show to discuss. There are so many parts and moving parts and involved parties from states like Iran and the U.S. to non-state actors, right, like ISIS and Hezbollah. It is hard, to say the least, I think, for the average person to keep everything straight. So can you maybe give us a beginner's overview of all the players and how they intersect? Wow, yeah, it's a very complicated region. And I actually think one of America's biggest downfalls when trying to approach the region and take actions in the region has been consecutive administrations, historical inability to understand a lot of these dynamics and really understand how a lot of the population interacts with one another, how various different kinds of governments interact with the populations, and then, of course, the role that all of these armed groups play. And they are armed groups which increase significantly in number after the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. And what you have today in Iraq, for example, is the birthplace of a lot of these groups, whether we're talking about the predecessors of ISIS or whether we're talking about any number of Shia militias who exist as a direct product of the U.S.-led invasion. To those who have been around for a lot longer, like, yes, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and any number of other groups. And then you have all of this external influence coming into play. So you have the Iranians, you have the Syrian regime, you have the Russians, you have the Americans, you have the Israelis, you have the Saudis, you have the Gulf countries. And what you really see in Iraq is actually the proxy battlefield between the majority of all of these other forces. And It exists in Iraq to a much greater degree than it does in any of the other countries who themselves are, yes, also proxy battlefields like Syria. But it really is in Iraq where you have all of the main actors, whether it's government or armed groups or whatever you want to call them, who really have penetrated that country to such a degree that the Iraqi population, which has been fighting to have a voice, has really long ago lost a say in its future. And I think that is really the biggest tragedy of all of it. So while it's really hard to keep track of who's who, what's what, who's attacking who, who's blowing up whom, I think for the average listener, it's really important to know that the vast majority of the people who are living the effects of circumstances over which they have no control, they are among the kindest, most compassionate, most resilient, worthy of admiration individuals that I have ever met. Oh, it breaks my heart. And just 
to think of all you've witnessed in the suffering happening during the many years in the region. CNN senior international correspondent Arwa Damon is the first journalist to gain access to that airbase. Humanitarian organizations are warning Syria is on the brink of a nightmare. Those who are living it will tell you that that nightmare began a long time ago. There's nowhere to turn. It's so claustrophobic. And every car here, every garbage can could be a bomb. Our MRAP takes a direct hit. They shout over each other about the government's use of force, their friends who were killed in the demonstrations, the injustice. This targeting of Qasem Soleimani and of the head of Kata'ib Hezbollah really puts us right now, Victor, in uncharted territory. From the government's perspective, these strikes by the United States were not against a pro-Iranian militia. They were actually against their own forces as well. The prime minister yesterday saying that the strikes also wounded um, some policemen and also wounded uh, some Iraqi soldiers. Can you maybe put a really human element on if this conflict turns into a full-fledged war or some form of proxy conflict, what will it look like for the civilians there? Can you paint that picture a little bit? It'll look very ugly. And that actually is what really broke my heart the most over the last two weeks. About two years ago, a year and a half ago, for the first time since 2003, I and my crew were able to sit outside in Baghdad coffee shops and restaurants and not be afraid of being attacked. Mm-hmm. And I say that to give you an idea of just how volatile Iraq was. People forget that during the period of you know, 2004 to about 2008, 9, 10, Everyone was being targeted by something. Mm. Iraqis who worked with, you know, foreign journalists were being targeted. Iraqis who worked with foreigners were being targeted. You know, Sunnis were being targeted by Shia militias. The Shia population was being targeted by Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then ISIS. And in the capital Baghdad, you always sort of had to live your life as an Iraqi to a certain degree behind closed doors. So those joyous moments that you see of, you know, people running up to each other on the street and hugging and all of the the festivities that surround, say, a birthday or a wedding, that would always happen very quietly and behind closed doors. But the last two years, sort of post-ISIS to a certain degree, that really shifted and the capital was beginning to change. I mean, yes, it was something of a bubble. It wasn't necessarily reflective of the security situation in the rest of the country. But at the very least, in the capital itself, there was a vein of of hope that I have never seen in Iraq. And when all of this started unfolding over the last two weeks, it completely and totally shattered that. Mm. It shattered this sort of veneer of security that Iraqis had been desperate for because Again, going back to those years, for people who don't remember, there was a period of time in 2006 and 2007 where every day there were more than 100, 100 unidentified mutilated bodies showing up on the streets of Baghdad. People used to crowd into the morgue that had this macabre video screen up that would just show mutilated body after mutilated body and they would be there looking for any sign of their loved one. That's what Iraq went through. And Iraq is not stable enough to be able to withstand being a proxy battlefield for powers like America and Iran. Can you maybe discuss a little bit about the difference in perspective from how Middle Eastern citizens viewed America before the strike on Soleimani versus after? Look, it's very hard to generalize, obviously, about single populations. But I think broadly speaking across the Middle East, there is this sense that America will always put its own interests first. America will always do what it wants. And America very rarely ends up paying the consequences for its destabilizing actions. There is, however, 
a differentiation that is made among many people between the U.S. government and the U.S. people. You can talk to someone who has a rabid hatred of the American government, and not just the Trump administration, but successive governments, but who does not necessarily extrapolate that to being a hatred of the American people. And at the same time, and this is something that's quite fascinating, is that even though there is so little trust in America because of its continuous missteps in the region, because of quite literally the chaos it brings in its wake whenever it gets involved in anything in the region, there is still this sense among people, no matter how badly America has betrayed them, that one day America is going to live up to the image that it portrays. That one day, perhaps, America will actually come in and save them and do the right thing and support the right government or support the population that's out there, you know, demonstrating in the streets for democracy. But with each time of America's betrayal or even perceived betrayal, a little bit of that gets eroded. He says all they want is to be heard. Stop the killing, he pleads. Listen to what they want. Send someone from the government to say, I am here to talk to you. What do you need? Next, we look much closer to home. Barbara K. Walter is an expert on civil wars, and she sat down with Alyssa to consider just how close our own nation has come to civil war in the aftermath of the January 6th attacks on our democracy and the violent extremism and authoritarianism which underpinned that attack. What's that pattern you're seeing here in the United States? Outsiders looking in think that when civil wars erupt, they just suddenly explode. And what they're not seeing uh, is that the, the path is being set years beforehand behind the scenes. It often takes decades and it often takes a handful of individuals. Sometimes it's students. One of the civil wars in Ethiopia was organized by a group of four students who met in university in Addis Ababa. And they would meet in cafes and they would talk about what they didn't like about the authoritarian regime and how they were going to change it. So this is not unusual where you have people who are who have with radical ideas, who are more passionate about a particular outcome, and they start talking about, okay, how do we, how can we get rid of the current government or how can we get a better government? But they're more radical than the average citizen. So their challenge is like, how do they recruit additional people to their cause? And I've been watching the United States for the last five years. I've been looking at the data that we have on the rise of far-right militias. I've been looking at videos that show them training. And they're training in almost every state. They're training in the woods of Michigan, but they're also training along the border now in Arizona with Mexico. So I've been watching these groups as they increase in number, as they gain more experience. I've gone to Facebook. I've seen the number of Facebook pages exploding. This is all apparent if you're looking for it. But if you're not looking for it, which is most Americans, where most Americans are, you don't see it. And so when the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer came out, I was like, this was bound to happen. They've been organizing. They've been talking about this. And Michigan has one of the highest numbers of militias in the country. That's always been a hotbed of militia activity. And so I was like, okay. It's not a surprise that this eventually happened, and it's not a surprise that it happened in Michigan. Why do they have more militias than other places? That's a good question. I think one of the reasons has to do with demographics, which is a a really important theme, not only in the book, but in terms of where you tend to see civil wars. Michigan is a deeply divided state. You know, one of the two most important predictors of civil wars is whether a population begins to divide itself politically, not around ideas like communism or capitalism, but around identity. So political parties form based on ethnicity, religion, or race. And that has happened here in the United States. And it's especially problematic if it also divides geographically. And if you look at the demographics in Michigan, you have cities in Michigan. Think about Detroit, 
or Grand Rapids that are a majority non-white. And you have the rural areas in Michigan that are almost entirely white. So you have this big divide and you also have a population that's fairly evenly divided. So whites, I don't know exactly what the exact percentage is, but whites and non-whites in, in Michigan are essentially competing over who's going to be the majority. And so when we think about presidential elections, it's never really clear which way Michigan's going to go because there is still this contest over, okay, is it going to go essentially Black or is it going to go white? And that makes for combustible politics because the stakes are really high. I want to add to that and maybe ask you, could it also have something to do with the car manufacturing industry pulling out of the state, leaving so many people jobless? And we, again, like we when we were talking about Iraq, we had no plan to train people for the changing economy. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because We know actually who tends to start civil wars, especially ethnically based civil wars. There's been over 200 civil wars since 1946 around the world. And if you look at who tends to initiate the violence, it's not who you think it is. It's not the poorest groups in society. It's not the groups that are most heavily discriminated against. It's certainly not the immigrants. Those are tend to be really weak disempowered groups, they can't, even if they wanted to organize, they wouldn't be able to do it. The groups that tend to start these wars are the groups that had once been dominant in a country or in a region, but are facing decline. The list of cases we just ran through there, Kyle Rittenhouse, Ahmed Arbery's killers, and the Charlottesville rally have another glaring thing in common. The defendants in those cases are all white men. And it's important that we acknowledge that because while black and brown people can absolutely display toxic forms of masculinity, society doesn't typically afford them the same leeway that white men get. Tamir Rice was 12 years old when he was killed for playing with a toy gun, not a real gun. Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 years old when he killed people with a real gun. And he's become a hero on the far right because of that. And that's not a coincidence. And in an opinion piece for NBC News, Isaac Bailey writes, the truth is that too many white Americans probably see themselves in Rittenhouse, afraid of anyone, whether white or of color, who wants to live in a more equitable country. Either they know they're about to lose power because demographics are changing or they've already lost power. And that is the situation here in the United States. We're in the midst of this great transformation that people only really became aware of around 2014. In 2014, there was a census that showed that a majority of babies born in the United States were non-white. And this census terrified a subset of the white population. And you actually saw a lot of militias beginning to form after that. This realization that, oh my gosh, even if we halt all immigration, even if we build a wall around the entire United States and nobody is allowed to come in, we will still transition to a white minority regime because of the birth rate. Do you remember 2017? the Charlottesville rally, they were chanting here. They were all of these alt-right groups. They came together. They had torches. And one of the things they were chanting was, we will not be replaced. We will not be replaced. It's the birth rate. It's the birth rate. And it was this realization that whites were going to lose their dominant position. And historically, when that happens, that's when, again, the extreme elements of a group begin to gain leverage because they're saying, listen, we work in the system, we're going to lose. And so violence is justified in this case. And violence is especially justified because it's our country and it's our right to take it back. Now, you brought up the economics of this, that, you know, what's really striking about Michigan is that this was a state that really was hurt badly by globalization. When globalization happened, and manufacturing jobs. And these were good union blue collar jobs where people could live a good middle-class life if they had one of these jobs. 
those disappeared and certain states were hurt disproportionately and Michigan was one of them. We know from the research looking at other groups that start civil wars, losing political power is the worst. That tends to motivate them more than anything else. If they don't have the votes to get elected, they start to organize. But if they're losing politically and they also experience an economic crisis where they're losing economically, so where they are looking at new groups migrating into their territory who are doing better, who are getting better jobs, who are getting higher salaries, that that compounds itself and it makes those groups even more likely to become violent. What does the January 6th attack mean for our country? I think the January 6th attack was a gift to the United States. When it was happening, people were calling me and emailing me. They're just like, are you watching this? Oh my God, what do you think? And the biggest emotion I had was relief. I was relieved. I was also relieved that the police response was muted, was almost non-existent. And I'll tell you why in a second, but I was relieved that that January 6th happened because up until then, people like me and JJ McNabb and all these people who study civil wars and who've been tracking the rise of violent extremists on the far right here in the United States, we'd been sounding the alarm. We'd been writing about this. We've been talking about it. I gave a speech in 2017 about it. And people weren't receptive. People couldn't believe that this was possible. And we were essentially ignored. And what January 6th did, it was just the most obvious public display of a cancer that had been growing in the country away from people's eyes, suddenly bursting onto the scene. And it made it impossible for American citizens and for our leaders to ignore or deny that this was happening. So it was a great gift because had that not happened, they would have been able to continue to grow and to recruit and to train. And really there would have been nothing to stop them. And at least now we have the FBI, we now have a, um, we're now paying more attention and we're not treating domestic terrorism as if it's not a problem. I mean, but aren't a lot of leaders in the Republican Party denying that it even happened or the severity of it? And doesn't that breed more division if we're not all on the same page? And do you think we will find ourselves in a civil war because of the lack of unity in our leadership? I think there's time that we are not on the precipice of civil war. We are in a situation where the U.S. has the two conditions that we know that put countries at high risk of civil war. But so on the task force, if a country had these two features, if it, had, if it was an anocracy and if it had political parties that were based on ethnicity or race or religion, we put them on a watch list. It was actually called the watch list. And we gave it to, I don't know, somebody in government, probably in the White House, and they watched the country to see what was happening. The U.S. would have been put on this watch list by the end of 2020. And if you're on the watch list, we know that you have about a 4% annual risk of civil war. That seems like it's very small, but it's actually not. Because every year that you continue to have those two conditions, your risk increases four to eight, 12. So after 30 years, for example, your risk is over 100%. So if you don't change, if you don't reform your system, if the Republican Party doesn't widen its tent to be more inclusive of more Americans, then eventually we will have civil war, but there's time and we know how you can change this. The problem is, and this gets to the Republican leadership and the big lie that they're perpetrating, 
The problem is that the Republican Party doesn't want to reform our democracy. They actually want to push us further towards autocracy and deeper into the middle zone. And the reason they don't want to reform our democracy is they can't win in a democracy that's one person, one vote. They don't have the votes. And so they have to, if they don't want to widen their tent, they don't want to include people beyond white Christians, then the only way that they can maintain power is to unravel our democracy, which is exactly what they're doing. And they can't unravel our democracy by telling Republican voters, we're going to actually destroy American democracy because most Republicans love America and they're proud of our democracy and they wouldn't agree with that. So what they're doing is they're creating this narrative that elections are being stolen from them, that our democracy is illegitimate, that our democracy somehow is not functioning and therefore we, we need to improve it. It's this kind of vast narrative designed to allow Republican elites to cement in minority rule with the support of average Republicans, many of whom don't even know that this is what they're doing. Many of the scariest things that happen in our country are aimed at women, and our next two clips will focus there. First, Alyssa visited with former Congresswoman Katie Hill, who was driven out of office following the malicious release of non-consensual pornography by a former intimate partner. I want to back up for just a second, and I want you, from your voice and your words, to give my listeners your stories so that it's not filtered through any media lens. Tell everybody exactly what happened. So June of 2019, I decided I had to leave my husband, so I left. He actually was technically the one who filed for the divorce, but that was my intention. But in the course of all of that, in the course of me trying to leave him, he said, I will ruin you. And that was a threat that scared me, but I didn't know what it meant. In 2007, I had a partner that I shared naked pictures with when I was pretty young. In 2011, my email was hacked into or entered by a person that I don't know who is. And they took these pictures and they uploaded all of this online with an encouragement to harass me. These pictures were sent to people on my Facebook friends list, sent to my family. I very quickly understood, you know, you can't keep it a secret because they don't allow you to keep it a secret because the point is to destroy your life. Turns out that he had not only released pictures of me, but he had taken pictures that I didn't even know about, saved them, and had even been posting them online on like swingers sites and on Reddit, things like that, that I had no idea was happening. So after I left him, some time passes and five months later, he ended up, I don't know exactly how it happened, but there was zero other way that those pictures could have gotten out into the universe or even existed except for through my ex-husband those were released in the right-wing media. And ultimately, it led to a revelation that I'd had a relationship with someone who worked on my campaign. And I admitted to that. And that's a mistake that I made. And it's always more complicated than it appears, but it's not something that I should have done. But my husband also accused me of having a relationship with one of my congressional staffers, which I didn't, which my staffer also denied, and which would be against the rules. But he made that accusation and that caused the ethics committee to open an investigation that would have been into my entire office and would have caused a great deal of trauma to my staff. And ultimately, I decided with that and how we were moving into impeachment and how I was currently a leader in the freshman class. I was the freshman representative to leadership. I was the vice chair on oversight. I decided that I would better serve the district and my staff and the caucus and everyone else if I stepped Decide. There's a problem with the term revenge porn because it implies, A, that there's something to be taking revenge for, right? That the woman maybe did something wrong in the first place. Um, and pornography also could imply that it was, it was consensual, and it's not. What I did not predict was that the district was going to immediately flip back to Republican, which is what happened in the special election, and now we have to win it back in November. To me, it seems very much like you were totally railroaded out of office because you actually had the audacity to be a woman with a sex and love life that might not have fit into what some might think of as traditional bounds. But I mean, 
fuck, we see male members of Congress have repeated affairs. We have a president who is a sexual predator who paid off a porn star and on and on and on and like that. So I still can't figure out why your consensual relationship was treated so differently. Do you think if it wasn't the impeachment coming up and you were just like, yeah, fine, I'm not going to step down because this happens all the time. Do you think that you would still be in office? I think so, honestly. I don't know whether that would have been the right thing or the wrong thing, but I know one thing that I did want was to take it off the table, whether we were being hypocrites or not, whether I was being a hypocrite or not, because I knew that I wasn't going to change my position or be able to back down on how I'm a champion for women's issues and how I do feel about women and the ways that we've been treated historically, especially as victims, whether it's in the workplace or in just life in general, sexual abuse victims. And I figured, and you know, everything was a blur, of course, then, but I didn't want every single action that I took be like, well, you did this, you did this, and you abused your power. Granted, that's what they do now. But I can always say, well, I did the thing that I think other people should be held to the expectations of, but I don't know that that was the right call. I know that it's devastating that the district flipped back. I know that it's not the way, you know, people say, oh, well, that's the way that the district voted. Well, the turnout was abysmal, and it was the first all-male election that had ever been done in California. And there's a whole analysis on why that's not representative of the district. But my sincere hope is that it goes back blue. I think it's such a testament to what a special candidate you were that you took that district that was historically always red and made it blue. And I know at this point you're probably upset that it switched back to red, but that's where it always was. So instead of feeling shitty about that, just try to realize how special you are. That is your power. And I also think that you have this really unique insight into the ways women are sexualized differently than men and punished for it. I mean, not only from your own experience, but from your time investigating Trump's affair with Stormy Daniels and the payments that happened to her. On February 13th, 2018, Mr. Cohen, you sent a statement to the reporters that said, quote, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Ms. Stephanie Clifford, and neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was party to the transaction with Ms. Clifford, and neither reimbursed me for the payment, either directly or indirectly. Was the statement false? The statement is not false. I purposefully left out Mr. Trump individually from that statement. The two of you were vilified in a very different way than men are treated. So what do you think that says about us as a culture and specifically about how our culture treats women in or in proximity to power? I think it's how it treats women in proximity to power, but it's also how it treats women in proximity to sex or in relation to sex. And you're right that if sex looks different than missionary style and you're married or at least hetero, then like it's weird to a lot of people. And bisexuality in particular is something that even a lot of well-meaning, accepting folks don't understand. And so I think that that's part of it, right? It just like inherently either is sensationalized or weird to people. It makes you seem like something different or there's a fantasy element as well. So I think that's one piece of it. But I also think that when you are a woman in power, You have different ways of asserting your power, right? Or how you kind of have to accommodate the fact that you are a woman. And I'm not one who has shied away from my sexuality. I've worn outfits that are feminine. I wear high heels. I've embraced that for who I am. And I know a lot of other people have too. But that's also, I think, something that scares a lot of men in power. It's disarming. And it's saying that I'm not only here at this table, but I'm going to do it my own way. And it's definitely a different way than you're accustomed to, right? Well, because we always had to fit into these conforms of what women in power should look like or be like. And then you add any sort of, um, you know, you're a woman who's bi and then they're like, wait, what? This is too much for me. Do you know what I mean? There's this element of like, if it were one thing, maybe that would be okay. But she's young, you know, and ageism is a very real thing in politics. And the thing is, is that I don't know how this story wasn't about non-consensual porn and internet exploitation because there's a very specific violation here in your case. Mm -hmm. And 
I want to discuss that for a minute because you had to bear the consequences of his really horrible actions. And do you consider what happened to you internet exploitation or non-consensual porn? And 100%. If- Imagine, if you will, that a horrible crime happens to you. But when you go to the police to report it, you find yourself as the one in legal jeopardy. This isn't the Twilight Zone. Rather, it's the reality for many women who report sexual assaults. Ray DeLeon and Nancy Schwartzman, creators of the Netflix documentary Victim Suspect, came on the show to explain how this happens. Can you contextualize the scope of the sexual assault epidemic in the United States and what those numbers tell us? So to give a better idea of the scope that we're talking about nationally, there are well over 400,000 sexual assaults in the U.S. Less than 30% of them are ever reported to police and only 1% of them are ever prosecuted. So the likelihood that there's going to be justice in that sense is already quite low. So the incentive is already quite low to report. And so to add this as another risk factor is really troubling. I want to come back to those numbers for various reasons. I think, obviously, those numbers are just huge. And I don't think people really understand that this is why people don't want to report, right? This is why women don't want to report, because it is a struggle to get anyone to believe us. So I do want to come back to those numbers. But first, you mentioned Emma Mannion before. Can you tell us a bit about her story? So Emma was 18 and a freshman at the University of Alabama. This was in the fall of 2016. And very normal Saturday night, she went out with some friends to a few different parties off the main strip. And she just randomly met these five guys who, you know, were like friendly and joking and offering them more drinks. And her and her friends started to walk back toward the main strip. And this would have made sense because it was going to go back in the direction of where she lived. And you know, anyway, you're just talking to these guys. She splits off from her friends and then she's stuck with these two men who are strangers to her. She's not even really sure what their first names are. Definitely not their full name. And they're leading her to this car that's in a gravel parking lot. She's thinking really nothing of it. Just, okay, maybe they're going to drive me home. And that's not what happens. She, her recollection is that she's pushed into the back seat. She is assaulted and she is not let out of the vehicle because the other friend is keeping guard. It's all feels like very quick, but also very long at the same time. And so she does get out of the car and a good Samaritan drives her home. And then she, for the rest of the night is just really processing and it's just awful and decides the next day that she's going to report. And her mom, who in the film is a nurse and her mom is very process oriented, very organized. She's you're going to go get a SANE exam. So Emma really like tries to do everything the right way. She tries to get a SANE exam by a nurse who's going to provide a rape kit as a process of that. She talks to the police. She cooperates with the police, tells them everything she remembers. And then days later, she still hasn't really slept much. They turn the tables on her. We have pulled you. You you have any idea how many video cameras are around there? All of that has been pulled. Okay. I'm going to tell you from, from the investigation, you're not being honest with me. Okay. With what I just told you? Yes. I do not believe you. I do not believe you at all. And I think you're one of those people that's taken away from my true victims. And I just want to add a couple of things that were really important to raise investigation and, you know, the police lack of investigation. Emma has video footage of one of the guys, right? Because they're hanging out before she's let off. And there's video footage of this guy. They're dancing and joking around. You know, if you were a law enforcement officer that was actually trying to prosecute a young woman's sexual assault, you would have taken that video immediately. You would have gone after it. You have a location, you have a potential perpetrator. And Emma had that material. 
So that's one thing. The other thing that was really key is her mom saying, go get an examination in the middle of a medical examination where she's alone, where she's naked, where she has a paper gown on law enforcement officers walk in the room. So she's never asked, we're bringing the cops in now. Do you want to report this now? So now you're entering the legal process. That was not clear to her because she's coming to the hospital completely distraught and she's getting a medical exam where her body has evidence and the cops come in. So those are two pieces that are also just so important to the story. And it also shows that the hospitals are letting cops in to exams, like first take care of the victim find out what she needs, what her body needs before you're bringing the whole criminal justice system. Oh, I just got the worst kind of chills down my back. Finally, we look to America's 20th century boogeyman, which is attempting to become the global villain it used to be once again. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it was another step in Putin's quest to return to the Soviet style of leadership. Owen Matthews, author of Overreach, shared his expertise with us earlier this year. I want to get into your book, Overreach. You start out the book talking about trying to schedule a meeting with someone who had once been your friend, but who had changed. Will you tell us about them and what that attempt revealed to you? That's a great place to start, Alyssa, because the guy I'm talking about is a writer, a very famous Russian writer. His name is Zakhar Prilipin. And he's a curious guy because he actually began his political career as a strong opponent of Putin. He was a young officer in Chechnya of the paramilitary police, called the Oman. This is the veteran who served in Chechnya during that disastrous, ultimately successful, but very bloody war of 1999 to 2000. He starts his political career by being a member of the nationalist opposition to Putin. A nationalist opposition. In other words, these are people who think that Putin is not going far enough that Putin is like sort of namby-pamby, that he needs to step up and defend Russia. And over the years, the really striking thing about the Kremlin is that people tend to forget, actually, that the West believed that Putin was like a sort of began his career back in 2000 when he was elected as like the continuity of candidate of Yeltsin. He was like considered to be pro-Western. And there was even talk, by the way, bizarrely enough today, of Russia even joining NATO. They were even talking about that. Certainly, Putin, you know, for the first 10 years that he was in power, was actually playing that big power game. He was hosting the then G8 summit, did a state visit to London and so on. But that changed. And after 2014, especially when he took a snap decision to invade Crimea, what you see very clearly is that the rhetoric and actions of the Kremlin start moving towards the rhetoric of people like my friend Zakhar. So actually, what used to be a sort of outlying position, like back in the 2000s, like, you know, Putin should step up and Russia is an imperial superpower, actually became Kremlin policy. So now Zakhar Prilipin is a well-recognized mainstream political figure. He's on the Russian television all the time. But the reason why I'm interested in talking to him is I'm curious as to what people like Zakhar Prilipin are going to do next. because. What they represent is one of the futures of Russia, which is much more scary than the current Putin regime. Let me say that again, just so nobody's in any doubt. There's a very real possibility that what follows the Putin regime could be scarier than the Putin regime. And the reason for that is that there is a, quite a strong base of ultranationalists who criticize Putin for not being strong or aggressive enough. Amazing though that may seem. That really exists. That's a kind of a thought that's strategically important right now. It's not just historically important. It's strategically important right now because I think a lot of people, both in Washington and in Europe, are actually concerned. Their main concern in the end game of this war is exactly what General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, started his first ever briefing to Joe Biden about the imminent possibility of war back in October 2021. Milley started his briefing to Biden with the words, how do we avoid this turning into World War Three?" And one of the ways in which it could turn into World War Three, and one of the things that is a very real danger in the endgame of this is regime change in Russia. Canada's foreign minister came out and said, our goal, you know, our endgame is regime change in Russia. 
Well, fine. I mean, we all think Putin is egregiously awful. But actually, I think one needs to think quite carefully about what removing Putin really means, because the nationalist opposition to Putin are far stronger than the liberal opposition, people like Alexei Navalny, the documentary film about whom just won the documentary Oscar. And let's talk about Wagner, the group and its leader. Wagner is one of the most extraordinary phenomena of this whole war. Let's talk about the Wagner Group. Secretive Russian mercenary group. A shadowy private security company that has ties to the Kremlin. Wagner Group has a gruesome reputation. The Wagner Group has been around for about 10 years. And its forces have shown up in all sorts of places, from Syria to Mali to Mozambique. What Wagner is doing is essentially acting as a proxy for the Russian government in different armed conflicts. And one of the clearest indications of just how profoundly rotten Russia's society and politics are in the late Putin era is the rise of Wagner. Wagner was founded by a literal Nazi, a guy called Dmitry Utkin, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Russian Special Forces. And you can tell he's a Nazi because he literally has a Nazi eagle tattoos on his chest and shoulders. That would be a dead giveaway. He is a Nazi. And he's called Wagner, by the way, because he loves Nazism. And he's not like an opera fan. I promise you that. Wagner is actually a person, the founder of this group. And it was funded by this sort of shadowy, he's called an oligarch, but he's really just a businessman who was close to Putin, made a lot of money through army catering contacts. And just as with lots of top businessmen in Russia, he was asked as his kind of unofficial tax, his unofficial sort of country club membership of that inner elite was like to fund something on behalf of the Kremlin. So what he funded was this paramilitary group, which recruited mercenaries from veterans of the uh, Russian army that he sent to fight in Ukraine in 2014, 2015, when the Russian army was pretending it wasn't there. Well, in fact, the Russian army was not there officially. It was there undercover. Plus, you have this mercenary group that sort of operates as a deniable arm's length thing, even though they were in Russian special forces camps and so on. They're supposedly deniable. They then went on to fight all kinds of wars in Africa. They fought in Syria. They fought in Libya. They fought in the Central African Republic and so on. But when the war breaks out in 2022, Wagner is given a license to recruit prisoners from Russian jails in order to fight on the front lines. And Dmitry Prigozhin is extremely well placed to do that because he himself, Prigozhin himself, is a former convict. And there are several very chilling films of him arriving in his helicopter at various Russian prison colonies, to addressing the prisoners and saying, you can redeem your crimes by risking your lives and spilling your blood. And he's recruited, the numbers are a little shaky, between 11,000 and 40,000 prisoners to fight on the front lines. And they have been sent to the thickest of the fighting, currently in a guy in town called Bakhmut, and they've been just mown down in droves. But the whole point is, and why this is an important indicator of how Russia today works, is they're expendables. Army of expendables. No one cares. They're convicts. So you can kill as many of them as you like without upsetting taxpayers. I mean, I feel, and this is definitely probably get letters about this, but I feel like there is expendables in every superpower. We have it in our country, whether it be through our healthcare system or our educational system, the people that get left behind, the people that are forced to be in the front lines of whether it be health and sickness or engaging in war. I want to try to understand, because you write in Overreach that prior to the invasion, there was this narrow place in Russian society where people could speak freely, even in opposition to Putin and the Kremlin. And then following the invasion, people no longer knew if that was safe or what was safe. And it feels like that's reminiscent, at least how we perceive it to be, how we understand Soviet life to be. Do you think Russian society has retreated back to that place? Are people turning other people into, you know, security forces? Or is it something just less than that? Is it not as premeditated? Yeah, for sure. Alisa, you put your finger on it. Psychology professor Samuel Hunter tells VOA, saying this kind of leader looks to the past. So they will uh, talk about a time when things were better. They will talk about a time to return to if, 
if, if you are to follow me as a leader, then we will return to this era where we have greater influence and power and strength. And so you know, Putin is a great example of, of that. Putin wants Russia to be treated like a superpower again. What's happening in Russia over the last year is just that moment in the movie Back to the Future where he just like stamps on the accelerator. And Russia suddenly goes from being amazingly, actually, again, I'm just talking about sort of Moscow and elite Moscow and so on. But Moscow was so cool. It was so European. It was really like very free, amazingly creative place. And indeed, as you say, there was actually quite a lot of space for opposition to Putin. So there wasn't thought crime. There were some people who were in prison for being very outspoken. But actually, you actually had you know a relatively robust, tiny, but robust, tolerated semi-independent media that sort of existed within the sort of pre-war Russia. And then suddenly, you essentially have a kind of takeover of Russia by a group of people who the Russians call siloviki. Sila means power. But what they're talking about is like securocrats. They're people who are around Putin. They've been literally working with Putin since the 1970s. And these are old KGB guys, literally old KGB officers like Putin is himself, who have reimposed something that was not really, you know, central or mainstream, or certainly not absolute in the years before the invasion. And that was this sort of Soviet-style paranoia and Soviet-style patriotism, military training, kids in uniforms, kids in schools doing weapons training, the sort of parades of citizens on the streets. All this stuff from the Soviet Union has come back. The propaganda has just become insanely Soviet. And those, by the way, those independent media and everyone who belongs to the opposition has been completely shut down instantly at the beginning of the war. So the real story, the real tragedy of this war is that the men around Putin, who were all in their 70s, by the way, Putin himself has just turned 70, have achieved what many old men perhaps dream of, but very few actually get, which is to create a future which resembles their own past. That's really interesting, especially when you look at the rise of nationalism globally and the age of those who are clinging on to a way of life that we all hoped we had evolved out of. Well, that was all terrifying. I hope we haven't scared you too badly. Alyssa will be back next week. Happy Halloween, everyone. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not 